I put together a few, some thoughts, and I thought I'd just talk a little while, and then maybe we could have a discussion with as much time as you have. And um, I hope that this in some way ties into uh, the topic. If not, just put it down to me being some weird tattooed in a few months it'll all be a blur anyway so um, <laughs> we human beings have a great survival advantage which is our ability to connect and uh, actually one of my beefs about my long-term Buddhist practice is that, is that while there's such a great emphasis on the internal work of creating an eternal safe container, there's often not as much of an uh, emphasis on what it means to deeply connect on a one-on-one -on -one level with another individual, which the Buddha actually said throughout, there is no spiritual path without learning to connect with what he called Kalyanamita, at least in, in uh, Pali. I'm not sure what it is in... Um, spiritual friend. Yeah, spiritual friend. So um, we connect in two ways. The way you're most familiar with in your day-to-day -day life is, of course, through the conceptual language-based left hemispheric mind where we can have a conversation and exchange ideas. And you can even be texting on your phone, probably, or a bit distracted, and you could probably still take in the fact that I'm saying, oh, I have to do this today, what are you doing today? blah, 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 the kind of bullet points of life. And uh, that's uh, only one very small part of connecting with another human being. Um, we also connect in what I like to put, call the uh, emotional mind. You could view it as uh, just the unconscious right hemisphere, what the Buddha called the citta, the heart mind. There's so many different labels for it. I like the emotional mind because um, uh, recently a lot of uh, research shows that the realm of emotions is essentially the most important feature of uh, this kind of uh, subconscious connection that we make with each other. The realm, the realm of affect or emotions. That's um, in our first two years of life after we're born, the way we connect and communicate and manage the attachment between the infant and our caretaker is through emotions. We are actually, interestingly enough, conscious in our right hemisphere the first three or four years of life before we do the great migration from right to left and all the memories that are, uh, that are consciously held are wiped away and only the emotional memories are held from the first four or five years of life. And then we switch over to the left hemisphere and we start to connect with other people through language. But for the first several years of our life, the way we are connecting is through crying, uh, expressing disgust, joy, excitement, fear. And if all things work out, um, the infant achieves what's a locked-in, relationship with uh, the caretaker. Uh, I'll just refer to it as the mother because uh, it's just easier, but it could be the father. Um, and so the child is, 
is expressing a whole bunch of different emotional states. And the mother's job is to see those emotional states and to signal in some way that she understands and can meet the needs of the child to create a sense of what's called a secure base. If the child feels connected with a secure base, with a mother or a place she can, the child can return to, that child she can go off into the world, explore, uh, meet people, be confident, and understand, and this is probably the most important point, understand her own emotional states. Um, so, to put it in the eyes of one great psychologist, our primary goal is to be seen in the eyes of the other from the moment we're born. To be seen in the eyes of the other doesn't mean to, there's no language present. It's the, I'm going to express my sadness, my fear, my anger, my anxiety, my frustration, my disgust, my loneliness, my overwhelm to you, and you as my caretaker are going to look and you are going to signal somehow that you can understand me. And throughout the entire course of our adult lives, even though this process moves to the unconscious, it is always happening. In every conversation you and I will ever have through the rest of our lives, while we are exchanging words on one level, on another level we are emotionally taking each other in, and or not. We are connecting on a level that is sub the conscious level, but it is the most important in determining our sense of security. While the left hemisphere, where language is, is all about plans and how do I get through this day to the next day and how do I uh, get to my vacation and, and blah, blah, blah. How do I get through my life in a straight line that looks good to other people? The right hemisphere, which is the emotional realm, is all about how can I securely connect to another person right now on a level that is far deeper than language. And if I don't connect well, what I wind up feeling is sadness, uh, loneliness, fear, negative emotions. And if I do connect well, according to great psychologists, Barbara Fredrickson, Alan Shore, Matthew Lieberman, I like to read this stuff, uh, we, we get what's known as positive affect. And all of our emotional lives are a... Um, essentially a litmus test on how well we feel connected right now. It's not about the future, it's not about the past, it's about right now, together, how well do we feel right now connected to the people around us. If we feel poorly connected, there will be a tinge of sadness or fear. So how do we install this connectedness that is healing? that provides a sense of security. And there's four levels I would suggest. I'm going to call them proximity, attunement, sympathy, and empathy. So proximity is simply when I was with my friend in hospice, it's the dedication to stay with someone for a period of time without any uh, anything else being possible to take me away to pull me away, to maintain literally my, uh, the sense of distance, the sense of being with, the sense of providing companionship. 
And that's a kind of a dedication that we set before we, we do any kind of spiritual work. In my work, uh, not just this year with my friend, but in all of my one-on-one encounters, I turn off everything. There's no way to connect with me besides that person. And I am sitting there with them for the period of time. And there is nothing that's going to come between us. There's nothing that's going to pull me away. It's a sense that I am with you. Uh, that is what provides a sense of safety. Human beings, again, the thing that we don't run fast, we don't fight well, we don't have shells or claws, we can't climb trees well. So how did we become the dominant species? We became the dominant species by connecting both through language and deep emotional sense of I'm there for you, you're there for me. And so the second level is attunement, which is the ability to hold another individual in my eyes without having a narrative going on in the back of my mind, without being pulled away, without anything interrupting my presence with you. If I am not present with you, if I am in any way, and I I cannot stress this enough, if I am in any way thinking about uh, what I'm going to be doing after I'm here right now, if I'm thinking about, oh, you know, know, where am I going to get lunch or all the things I have to do, then you will emotionally know. On the level of consciousness, you might not know. You might not pick that up. You might see, oh, here's that that guy with the tattoos. He's still rambling on. But you will emotionally start to feel the sense that I am not connected to you. And you will emotionally start to lose that sense of um, emotional gluing. That's not really a good term. Emotional, like that sense of here we are together. And you, your mind will begin to drift before you know it. And we will lose that sense of intimacy and that sense of mutual support and that sense of uh, togetherness. So attunement is really keeping each other in each other's gaze. It's probably the most fundamental human need to be seen by another. The third is sympathy, which is simply the ability that I can listen to you and you can tell me about your struggles and I can understand it. And I can tell you about my challenges and you can understand them. And so we can use our narrative faculties to convey what's going on in our lives. And that is the only cognitive part of the entire process, the only part that involves thinking is listening to another person tell their story. The fourth part is what's called empathy, and some psychologists refer to it as mentalizing, like Peter Panagi, or mirroring, like Kohut, etc. But I just use the word empathy, and that's the ability, while I deeply take you in, while I'm attuned to you, I can feel internally some of your mood or emotion that you're conveying to me. You're probably conveying it to me often not willingly. Your vulnerability you don't want to expose to me, but still, as I urge you to talk about your life, eventually your vulnerable states will start to slip out. And rather than allow you to pull the conversation to distracting places or repress the emotions. I'll focus in on the emotions that you're conveying. And I'll do that 
by feeling what you're feeling a little bit, and I will mirror it back subtly through my facial expressions. Now, the role of mirroring is to also create what's called emotion regulation. I'm not just mirroring you back to, to seal the deal in our emotional connection, but I'm also helping you regulate your emotional state of activation. If I become as upset as you are when you lose your keys, uh, I'm not really helping you. But if I'm completely indifferent to the amount of uh, frustration and anxiety, and I don't show you any of it, you won't feel any sense of mutuality. So I'm essentially mirroring, and none of this is strategically done consciously, it's just naturally part of the process. When I mirror back to you, what I'm doing is I'm showing you uh, a slightly toned down but empathetic emotional response to your situation. And that unconsciously helps you find what some call an appropriate level of emotional response to the struggles and challenges of your life. So all those four, proximity, attunement, sympathy, and empathy, I would suggest none of it requires that I fix or solve or tell you what to do or be instructive in any way. And of course, when we are around people that are suffering, we are kind of culturally instructed that, or we are trained by our culture that the most essential thing to do to show that we are quote-unquote human is to immediately jump in and when somebody says they're frightened to tell them that they have nothing to be frightened about. And that emotionally achieves absolutely nothing. Because deep down inside most people have already internally argued back and forth about why they shouldn't be frightened and why they should be frightened and they don't need another external voice telling them that they shouldn't be frightened. What they need is somebody to empathetically hear not just the uh, conditions of their life which make them frightened, but they need someone to actually hear the fear in the crack of their voice, the corner of their eyes, the very subtle gestures, and they need someone to mirror it back and to help them hold their fear. And in that way their fear is regulated, not by having me say, oh, you've got nothing to be frightened of, you'll be okay, you'll hang in there. Achieves, in my experience, nothing. It simply is a way to try to get rid of another person's emotional state, and our culture is rich with that. When we go to um, memorial services, I was just at one recently, you know, and I just listened, and as the people walked up to the widow of my friend, um, they were all saying things like, well, at least he got to go to Paris before he died. Not simply being with, not simply connecting, not simply taking in her sorrow, not simply providing any kind of uh, secure connection in any way, but just simply trying to get rid of her grief. And uh, that, to me, achieves very little. So uh, all of this creates the secure base that I talked about. But what happens in childhood or in life as we grow up and our emotions are not met? We don't get attunement from others, where other people, instead of hearing our emotions 
shame us, reject us, abandon us, pull away, don't take in, don't absorb, don't create a, a deep emotional connection. Um, in that case, I mean, I can I'll quickly run over what happens that leads to emotional dysregulation. The chain goes like this, and this is all from uh, EFT and ADDP, you know, therapies. You don't have to care about any of it. The cycle essentially goes like this. I'm faced with a difficult experience in my life, and I have a core emotional experience. And I come to you to talk about it, and if you tell me there's nothing wrong, or that I shouldn't feel that way, or you don't pay attention, or you um, are not available, and this happens on a consistent level, that abandonment then creates a secondary social emotion which is called embarrassment, shame, uh, loneliness, overwhelm, and me. Then what happens is in trying to avoid future disappointments with other people, I try to not think about my situation. I try to deny it. If, I have a, if I'm faced with a difficult diagnosis or a difficult transition in my life, Rather than express it, I will try to not allow it to be part of my conscious awareness or I will try to push it away because the crucial thing that I need to help hold that emotional experience and really the thing that makes challenges and transitions in life so difficult is the emotional experience. That's what we need to hold is... I'm, I, I'm frightened now of my emotions because I've been, I've, I've found that they lead to abandonment, to rejection. So I will not want to express them. I will try to say everything's fine when you ask me. I will try to change the subject when you try to connect with me. So this is why it's so crucially important when we do any kind of meaningful work with each other to really continually drop whatever is going on in the mind and become fully present. Drop, become present, become present, become present fully, not just words, but more, I would say 60, 70%, 80% of the awareness on the, the facial expression, the gesture, the, the subtle shifts in the body, the, all the underlying content that is being communicated. If we can do this, which is in my work essential, then I find that people very quickly transition in a one-on-one -on -one experience from shutdown to being willing to um, really open. Sometimes if there, there's been a lot of really early traumatic abandonments, if somebody's grown up in what's called a fearful avoidant attachment style, uh, it will take longer. Probably what creates the longest and most difficult emotional connection between two human beings is the presence of addiction. Addiction is the attempt by people who have experienced uh, a breakdown in core emotional connections in their life with caretakers is an attempt to replace other people with substances. The reason why I was addicted to alcohol and drugs for 18 years and wound up in various detoxes and rehabs is I grew up with a completely inconsistent 
caretaker who, as Chodo indicated, was a complex guy. There was no reliability in my household, and I had no idea when you were going to love me or literally hit me. So, uh, given that degree of emotional unreliability, uh, my choice unconsciously was not to reach out to other human beings for emotional connection for a long time, but was to uh, essentially regulate my emotions, the ones that led to my father's beating me up, which was any sense of being non-manly, any sense of being frightened, any sense of being frustrated. So that's a lot of emotions that lead to this connection. So it created a constant need to numb my emotional activations through alcohol. If there's any question now about why it is essential that we as uh, care providers or as anyone who wants to provide help to anyone cannot be using addictive substances, let me just say it straight out. Addictive substances, intoxicants, all are a way to unnaturally regulate or remove or numb emotions. And the work we're doing is largely based on the emotional mind's capability to connect with another emotional mind. If I'm in any way not present, not capable of feeling my emotions, not in touch with them, I cannot give you any empathy. I not, cannot provide any of the core connectedness that you need to feel safe and to feel heard. So I cannot, in my life, not only while I'm connecting, but for me personally, I can't have any intoxicants in my life because they essentially replace the process of um, connecting with creating a safe container internally with my emotions and then being able to connect with you based on our affects and being able to mirror back to you your affects. It's completely, utterly uh, removed by the presence of intoxicants in the equation. Uh, finally, um, I have been sober, now I'm about to have 21 years, and I can say, sadly, that uh, I know, because I've been not only sober through Buddhist uh, uh, organizations for my entire sobriety, but also through 12-step programs, that there are a lot of people who achieve what I would call substance-free sobriety in the sense that they're not using, but are absolute messes. They're angry, they're emotionally completely still shut down, incapable of holding or safely expressing or connecting with their anger. Their anger comes out in a completely dysregulated expression. They cannot in any way uh, vulnerably connect with people when they are uh, or express their emotions. They can't provide a safe container, even though these people have as much sobriety as myself. And the reason is, is because they haven't explored the underlying wounds and um, 
traumas and abandonments that led to their addiction. To really be uh, a useful uh, companion to other people, to provide care in any way, it's not just enough that we are sober and addiction-free, and I mean also, you know, not, in, not fully involved in other addictive behaviors such as uh, com- continual shopping or, uh, you know, compulsive sex or anything that removes our ability to fully connect with our emotions. But it's also essential, if we've had any addiction in our life, to be able to investigate what were the emotional experiences that led to the addiction so that I can fully connect with those affects or emotions that led to the abandonment. In other words, let me put it concretely, with my father, um, my father was a very physically violent, aggressive man, and in the presence of any kind of aggression, for a long time I would shut down. And to be around other men, I would have to drink extremely heavily to feel safe. And even though for a long period of my sobriety, I was not drinking or using drugs, I was still dissociative in the sense when I was around aggressive, macho men, because I would feel, um, I would just want the fear to go away. And it was actually, you know, you might not think that that Shoto represents that, but to me, he was a kind of safe father that I could work through my fear of men through our own one-on-one therapy, which allowed me to be fully present. And through other work with my teacher Noah, between Shoto and Noah, investigating and slowly opening to that core fear of the four-year-old with the drunk father, uh, to be able to understand why I was numbing for so long was crucial so that now I can provide love and care and support for other men who I work with one-on-one. If I could give you one single tip that I use when I'm talking with someone, uh, interacting with someone who is high or still under the influence of intoxicant, is to talk to the emotion that they're experiencing without trying to change it, but just acknowledge it. So essentially, it sounds like, I can see that you're angry. I can see that you're frightened. I can see that you're, you're scared, lonely, upset. When people hear that we can understand the emotional state that they're in, it tends to, because so much of the aggression associated with Uh, somebody when they're truly activated is the belief that nobody can really hear what they're feeling. And deep down inside we really most want to uh, sense that other people can understand what we are emotionally feeling, even if they're high. So if you talk to, and I, I never say I know what that's like, because I don't know what somebody else's fear is like. I try simply to say I can see, or it seems to me that you're frightened. Is that right? Does that sound right to you? Or what? Or are you more uh, concerned? 
I just try to find the emotion that's present, and I try to talk to that. I don't try to argue or discuss their situation first. I try to make a connection that's beneath the the narrative that they've got pinning in their head. You know, their life is falling apart. They can't pay their bills. They're in financial overwhelm. They're they've ruined everything. Nobody cares. The whole stories I'm not talking to. I'm trying to first just connect with that sounds really painful. I can see that you're really frightened right now. Now, one of the big issues is, of course, emotion contagion, which is when we truly... So sympathy is just simply the ability to hear somebody report a story and stay present enough that we can understand the the context or settings that they're facing in their life and be able to repeat it back. And to be able to, in some way, uh, understand the the thought content that's driving them, that's activating, you know, a painful affect. So when somebody says, oh, I'm, I'm, I need medical care, I can't show up for work, and I'm overwhelmed with the amount of bills I have, the, the empathy and mirroring is, a, a, is connecting with the overwhelm and the lack of, and the confusion that they're facing. But the sympathy is simply understanding, oh, okay, this person has a lot of different obligations that they're not capable of meeting right now, and being able to then understand in a cognitive way what they're facing so that we can help them if they want on that level to help them unpack what's the next right thing to do. But most of the thing that leads to being caught up and unable to create a safe one-on-one environment is if we're truly available, then sometimes we suffer emotion contagion where we will be pulled in to uh, their emotional state. And it happens to us all. I have people come in in, uh, my office with very, very charged levels of anxiety or fear And if we're not breathing or creating still part of the body that's safe and relaxed, then if I'm not physically relaxed and focusing on keeping my breath and my posture in a a kind of neutral way, then I will physically go into the same kind of contracted state of anxiety and overwhelm that they will. So part of the ability uh, to provide emotional mirroring and empathy is we can't have our emotional state become as activated as theirs. Then we're not achieving anything either. I mean, somebody comes in deeply worked up because they can't pay a bill or they feel lonely and uh, or they've been through a, a, a breakup while they're facing a difficult life transition. Um, if I become as lonely or frightened or if I react to their loneliness or frightened with a sense of uh, a, a masking emotion, then I, I'm not achieving anything. So the way I stay present and not get pulled in is there's always part of me that's staying a little back and just, it's not lost in thought, it's not, not available, but it's making sure that I'm physically relaxed.
And if I'm physically relaxed, then I won't be pulled into their emotional state as much as they are. I'll still be able to empathize, I'll still be able to hear what they're talking about, I'll still be able to tune, keep them in my gaze, I'll still maintain proximity, but I won't, I won't be sucked in fully to the fear or anxiety, and then I'll be able to create the need which is, they have, which is to be with somebody who understands, but is not overwhelmed. Is that? Yeah, thank you. You're Hi. Me no, I uh, there's there's so many different ways that I mean addiction is essentially an attempt to get to not express emotions to another person, which leads to isolation, being cut off from other people, and so addiction can take many many forms. It doesn't have to take the form of wanting to drink or shoot up drugs. It can be oh. I'm feeling a little bit lonely. I don't really want to connect. I want to turn on Netflix and, and binge watch Making of a Murderer for, you know, eight hours as a way to replace the absence of, of felt individuals in my life. So do I have that kind of... Yeah, of course. All human beings do. And the, the emotional mind is associative. It's not a straight line. When people grieve losses, they can go through periods where they're okay, and then they can see something that reminds them of the lost attachment, and it will reactivate them. So there's no fully ever processing uh, things. There's just learning how to open and face and be with difficult emotions. And so I've gone in my life from when I fear, I experience, say, uh, anxiety, social anxiety. I don't have to, I don't feel the need to drink anymore. I don't feel the need to do drugs anymore. But sure, I'll have, I'll feel the inclination, oh, rather than deal with this, maybe I could just go shop or, you know, buy another hoodie or, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, that's what I, I not, not on Koshin's top ten list. He isn't like, oh, I, I'm feeling sad, time for another hoodie. Not his outlet, but, but I don't know, what do you do? What do you do when you're like, uh, what's your, like, uh, your emotion, your uh, addictive fallback? Come on, acknowledge. Socks. Socks? Socks? Yeah. You laugh at hoodies? I love a fun sock. 